This is The Shift Podcast. Hey, it's John, and thanks for checking out The Shift Daily Podcast. On this episode, we connect again with our friend Ryan Recker from Overnight America on the heels of Super Bowl 55 and a conversation as to why and how the Super Bowl has become the largest television and sporting event in America and also Canada, for that matter. Why is that exactly? And then we'll connect with Andrew Ferreira, the host of Weird Science, with regards to a new mission sending spacecraft to Mars. What is that all about? And is Matt Damon involved? Then we'll connect with Matt MacArthur. That's right, the Matt MacArthur with the history and the art of smashing guitars when you're on stage as a musician. Where and how did it all change and why don't we see it as often anymore? Finally, a conversation about the upcoming 2021 and 2022 Olympics. And are you okay to round out this particular episode? If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and stay up to date on all things that are happening with The Shift. For now, let's connect with our friend. It's Ryan Recker. Let's say hello to America as America says hello to Canada. Connecting the shift and Ryan Recker from Overnight America via KMOX, the voice of St. Louis. hook up with our friends in Canada and normally it's Shane he is off tonight I think the next couple of Sundays joining us just in a couple of seconds is John Jang in for the shift they may even be listening to us right now what's going on Ryan yes hello Oh, good to hear from you. How are you? I'm doing all right. And indeed, uh, we gave Shane the the night off. He's been working super hard over the past, uh, I guess, month and a bit here to start 2021. So here I am. I'm the fill-in guy. And it's a very nice pleasure to be connecting with you for the first time. Thanks. So do you guys get into the Super Bowl in Canada? Is it like a big spectacle? It is because, of course, by association, anytime something big happens in the, in the United States, uh, Canada and Canadians, we love to get involved as well. So anytime the Super Bowl is here, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's the biggest television event, not just in the United States, but in all of North America. So I couldn't help but uh, just be stuck in front of my TV all day watching out the, the game and, and how it unfolds. And I know you're based in Missouri, so uh, chances are your local listeners there are not too pleased with how it went. But, uh, you know, for me, it was it was a decent enough game. I would say that. Yeah, I think that a lot of the listeners in St. Louis were just so soured on the NFL after the whole Rams ordeal. Right. And they're just waiting for the retribution to happen with the lawsuit that's going on. So I think that they stripped the NFL and the Rams and everything off their walls and the businesses. They said, no, uh, I don't even know if you go into a discount bargain bin, if you can find anything Rams related (laughs) because they tossed it. They didn't donate it. And that's part of the thing. Well, Kansas City side, I think people like that it's, you know, the state's team, Mm -hmm. but they're just so burnt by what happened before. They may be apathetic to it all, but they did root for him just because of the proximity. I, I, I think I understand that because, uh, you know, I, I've been a football fan for a while. I used to work in sports radio for a little bit. So I'm quite familiar with the situation there, especially with the St. Louis Rams and ownership, Stan Kroenke, basically just stealing the team and, and you know, 
going to LA. I mean, that's not great. And as a Vancouverite, um, you know, just adding my NBA connection here with the Vancouver Grizzlies, who had a very similar situation, uh, and them now being in Memphis, there's still lots of Grizzlies fans around here in Vancouver who have not forgotten that the NBA once used to call Vancouver one of its teams, and that uh, you almost wow. had a chance to actually draft Steve Nash, a Canadian kid in a Canadian team. That didn't happen, and who knows, maybe if things had worked out a little bit differently, the NBA would still be here in Vancouver. But I do understand, and I'm sympathetic with St. Louis sports fans who feel like they've been cheated. I can understand that 100%. Yeah, you know, St. Louis used to have a professional basketball team before that merger with the NBA, mm-hmm. was it the ABA, the American Basketball Association. So, you know, we had the uh, team here that was pretty popular, and the person that came in to call those games was someone that worked for KMOX and was hired in to do it, was hey. now famous Bob Costas. Oh, right so, on. And, and later goes on to do many great things with NBC and still has a great history here with the, the radio station. Much love for uh, St. Louis and such. And I, they've always rumored, they said, well, what would it take to bring an NBA team back here? They always rumor. And this is one of the rumors that flew around originally when there was that lawsuit with the NFL. They said, if it goes to discovery and they have to open up the books to avoid embarrassment, they may just throw us a bone and move a team here. So, <laughs> But... Then the XFL got popular, at least for just a tiny bit before COVID, and it was doing great here. People loved it in St. Louis. So it goes to show that they would go see football if there was something that they could cheer for. I can understand that. I I was excited about not just the XFL, but the AAF, which also had a very short lifespan. And who knows? uh, From what I last heard, like Vince McMahon is dead set on bringing the XFL back, I think, in 2023, maybe 2022. So fingers crossed, maybe there is uh, professional football again in the future for uh, St. Louis sports fans but you know just coming off that Super Bowl Ryan it's it's so fascinating to see how it has become such a must see event in the United States and maybe we have to understand the position of the NFL and football for that matter. And with respect to baseball, which has earned a reputation as being America's pastime, there's no sports league in America that's bigger than the NFL and there's really no sport that's bigger than football. But here in Canada you know, I'm sure you understand the stereotype. Us Canadians, we love hockey. We love the NHL. But when the Stanley Cup final is on, there is no chance we handle the Stanley Cup final in anywhere near the, the size, the capacity, uh, the way that the United States handles the Super Bowl. It is massive. It is the single greatest sporting and, and television event of the year. And yet when the Stanley Cup final comes on, I mean, unless... by chance, two Canadian teams are in the Stanley Cup final, which hasn't happened in such a long time, uh, then, you know, it it doesn't really carry the same traction. And I wonder if that has to do with the the population size and the difference between the United States and Canada, or just maybe culturally how the two nations and the two populations are designed to take in sports. I'm going to look. When was the last time there was a Canadian team in the Stanley Cup final? Well, for for any Canadian team? Let's see. Yeah, let's see. Montreal Canadiens in 93. Has it been that long? I haven't won a cup since 93. Right. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I love hockey. I mean, I grew up watching hockey. I grew up in Detroit, which was also nice because we had the CBC in Detroit. So I was able to watch like Molson Hockey Night in Canada and all the, you know, Friday and Saturday night games with limited commercials, which was great. So if there was some sort of like local game and you can flip it over and watch one of the late games that are playing on the CBC, that was always cool. I always liked the interviews and things that they did. Um, 
so I always had fun and I was fortunate enough to have that as a local channel growing up, but I don't think anyone here in St. Louis had the CBC, nor would they go out of their way to get it. But man, it was a fun presentation for it all. And I kind of yearned for that, to, to watch the different Canadian ways of how they get so excited over their, their hockey. I miss that. I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because we have like Saturday nights or hockey night in Canada and uh, growing up, um, you know, certainly I was kind of trained to just make sure you don't plan anything too big or too special on a Saturday night because that's when Canadians like to sit around the TV. It's a family event. You can watch it with friends. You can watch it at the bar. Everyone's kind of watching your local favorite team. And yet with the NFL, again, there's um, not just the Sundays and the Sunday night games, but there's Monday night football. There is Thursday night football, which isn't the most popular, but it's there and it still draws so many viewers. And then you come to what we just had, which was Super Bowl Sunday. And it, it's, it's not just a game, right? It becomes an entire event. Uh, we had, I mean, I had read uh, earlier this weekend that what 1.4 billion chicken wings will be consumed across the country in the United States uh, in preparation mm-hmm. for the Super Bowl. And so it, it becomes this thing of tradition and this thing that just becomes larger than just a sports event. It becomes, I don't know, like, like, like an actual event. And uh, there's no way any other sports event that I can really think of um, you know, with, with Canadians in mind, with the Stanley Cup and the NHL and anything else, really, that comes remotely close to the Super Bowl. It is fascinating to see how this business, the NFL, has managed to do this in, in, in honestly, quite a short bit of time. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how the markets break down and right. how much people uh, actually consumed it and watched it this year. I didn't watch a minute of it. I mean, I didn't have the TV on at all. I had no interest. And it's been a long time since I've cared about the NFL least I would uh, like last year, I at least watched the halftime show because I thought, well, people are going to talk about this. So <laughs> I should probably watch it. But then again, that was because I was at the radio station studios last year and it was on right here when I'm working from home. I didn't re- you know, it's not like I'm monitoring it just to, to see. And I wasn't going to just sit there and wait for it. So I just skipped it all together and I thought I can catch highlights on the computer or something. But here in St. Louis, I mean, even when the Rams were here, you're not going to find people um any more excited for that than you would the cardinals i mean cardinals are easily the number one team in st louis and as of late with hockey and the blues have been doing so well you know winning a stanley cup a couple of summers ago that was such a big deal and so cool to see that has kind of reignited the uh, blues fan base because for the longest time they were always like there but they never really got to the big opportunity and finally they did and man what a special season that was because they went from like last place to stanley cup champions that's right really amazing yeah that that story was truly captivating Uh, the last place team and then basically you flip the calendar and they became absolutely scorching red hot and then the song gloria became famous in fact that's the theme song we have for you and we connect here on sunday night so it's just it's iconic now to not just the not just st louis but maybe uh the state of missouri when it comes to hockey as a whole Uh, but it's interesting thing you know uh, i did watch the super bowl you know I, I i did like i said i enjoyed parts and bits of the game i had i had wager down so i was just mostly curious to see how that would fare <laughs> out i did win money i'll, I'll put that in mind uh but okay. it, it's interesting because here in canada no matter where you are uh in this in this part of the country you aren't allowed to have fans at any sporting event it doesn't matter if it's professional it doesn't matter if it's uh, minor league or beer league or whatever it is you can't have fans at any sporting event and yet the super bowl we had heard 22,000 were in Tampa for the Super Bowl. It looked like more than that. It's fascinating, though, 
how different those rules are and and the whole COVID-19 situation still hasn't been uh, treated yet. We, we, need, we know vaccine rollouts, they've been delayed here in Canada. It's a complicated issue. It, the prime minister is facing a lot of uh, pressure and public scrutiny for that. So it's kind of perplexing just putting those two parallels together. Neighboring countries with totally different approaches to how to handle large crowds during sporting events or any event for that matter during COVID-19. Yeah, I meant to look this up because I wasn't sure if the NFL moved the Super Bowl to Tampa because of their restrictions are a little bit more lenient in Florida. Um, but I don't know if that was the case, if that was just naturally happened, because mm-hmm. I looked up uh, next year. It's in Los Angeles and California has some of the strictest restrictions. So I thought, well, that's going to be tough if, if this time next year and there's still major restrictions, how that's going to play out. But then again, I thought, OK, in Los Angeles, if no one is allowed to go there because of the restrictions in the state and it hurts Stan Kroenke, I'm OK with that. <laughs> but no problem whatsoever. Let them lose money on the Super Bowl. That would be fine with me. But uh, you mentioned sports betting. Is that something you can legally do in Canada? Um, is that just a well accepted uh it, it depends because right now as it is there's a bit of a archaic law so it prevents you from doing any single event sports betting so if you want to do sports betting you need to parlay it so if for example going into the game tonight if uh one of us decided hey we're gonna make a bet i just want to know if the kansas city chiefs are gonna win if so i'll, I'll put 50 dollars down I, I feel like that's a good bet well that alone is illegal but if you parlayed it with, say, oh, I think the St. Louis Blues are going to win their next hockey game, all of a sudden that's legal. So it's it's a very hmm. strange, outdated rule. But there's currently some pressure on the federal government in Canada to get that changed because it seems bizarre that it's still illegal like this. Uh, I think originally when they made this rule and they made this law, they were sensitive to match fixing. But anyone that's looking at any of the pro sports now, there's no match fixing. Like it's it's the farthest thing to be worrying about. Players on you know steroids and things of that nature. Sure, there's a bit of concern there. But match fixing, it's like the last concern I have when it comes to any pro sporting event. Yeah, I kind of remember that now. In my younger days, growing up in Detroit, you used to be able to go over the bridge to Windsor, and at the age of 19, you can get into the casinos and things. So um, this is back before. September 11th and you needed passports and all this stuff to cross the border. You can just be able to go over with a driver's license. They wouldn't ask you two questions about it to hop over on the bridge. (laughs) And, you know, when you're 19 and you're like, okay, this might be fun. We'll just drive over to Canada. It reminded me because you'd have to do the parlay betting if you're doing something like that. That's right. You remember that now. Yeah. Different uh, times, though. But it's amazing that they still do that. You know, I saw on Twitter, you guys were trending. It says Canadians versus Polar Vortex. Are you guys getting some blasts right now across the uh, country? Yeah, it depends where you are. Our producer, Ryan, is currently bundled up with uh, two or three different layers of blankets. It's, uh, I mean, you know, we deal in, in Celsius. I couldn't tell you what the Fahrenheit is, but it's it's uh, 30 below freezing. And again, I don't know what the Fahrenheit oh. translation is. Maybe Ryan can quickly Google that. But, Minus uh, 30 C2. Okay, let's yeah. take a look. It is uh, 22 below in Fahrenheit. Okay, there you go. So 22 below Fahrenheit. Uh, It is just mind bogglingly cold in certain parts of the country here in Vancouver. I'm like I'm on the West Coast. It never gets too cold. Like we live in a temperate rainforest. So we get a ton of rain, but uh, never a ton of snow or ice. Hmm. Interesting. That's, you know, the way I'm looking at this right now. 22 below in Fahrenheit would be enough where there would be all kinds of issues Um, like frozen pipes and 
you know, that really our homes in St. Louis are not built for that per se, mm -hmm. because it doesn't ever get that. Now, I've lived in places where it does get that way for like weeks at a time. Like Detroit. Miserable. Detroit's pretty bad, but, you know, you go further north in Michigan. I've even lived in places like Wisconsin and you get that for like a week and it's like it changes your complete mindset. It's terrible. I don't know how you guys stay positive when it's like that. The summers are worth it, I think. <laughs> the summers, <laughs> like, the, like the, the two or three months where you get some beautiful sunshine, good weather, you have to take advantage when you can because uh, you know the winter is not too far away ever. Look at that. Yeah, but you should see our summers. What a nice way to frame it. Always so optimistic. Can I ask you one <laughs> other quick question real quick? Yeah, what do you got? Um, and I, I was wondering about this, and I don't know what part of Canada did you say you're in? Are you, you're in Vancouver? Correct, yeah. Okay, so we were, uh, my son and I went over to the Science Center and we went and did the planetarium show where it shows you if you was, if there was no obstructions, no lights, whatever, this is what you'd see tonight in the night sky. But they kind of do this, these things about atmospheric things and mm. they were talking about the northern lights. My son being six thought, does that really happen? Is that real? Like, yeah, the northern lights are a thing. You just don't see it here this far south. But if you lived in Canada, you have a much higher chance of seeing it. I'm wondering, is that something you guys would regularly see in Vancouver? Or are you guys still too south for something like that? Uh, maybe just a little bit too south, but uh, you know, if you if you traveled a, a further, a little bit further north to say the Yukon or certain parts of northern British Columbia, northern Alberta, uh, then you definitely do get the chance to see it. And I've got some friends who live up in the Yukon, and uh, during the summer, boy, their Instagram pages are just chock full of the things you're talking about: northern lights, beautiful, like it looks like a National Geographic photo montage is wow. basically what it looks like and so i can tell you i haven't seen it personally but i know and, and i've personally you know at least witnessed it on instagram that it does happen to canadians just just kind of depends how far north you are in the country yeah i i thought it would be like here in the united states every i don't know 10 years you might get snow in texas and it's like a big deal like oh you never see snow in texas <laughs> i didn't know if you'd be like in vancouver and like oh once 10 years you know it comes south enough uh, enough for us to see it or if it's a regular occurrence or not yeah i mean the best thing that i've seen uh in a night sky that doesn't have to worry about light pollution or anything like that was uh up in the mountains uh just getting a really great shot of the milky way and one time when I was probably driving throughout the province, uh, I, I stopped at like a little truck stop on top of the highway, uh, sorry, on top of the mountain on the highway, and uh, I wanted to take a photo. So I pull out my phone, and it's completely dark. I don't really know what's going on, but I say, okay, this probably isn't going to work, but I'm going to take a photo of the night sky just to see if I can take the Milky Way with me. And then in the morning, when I eventually got home, I looked at that photo, Ryan, and I realized at that point that it was on selfie mode. So what I oh, got, no. yeah, what I got was a dark, blurry, stupid face of my mug grinning because I thought this was a brilliant idea. And instead, I just got the worst surprise ever. So uh, it, it, oh. it, we don't get the northern lights too common, but uh, the Milky Lights, uh, sorry, the Milky Way, uh, a bit more common, depending again, where you are and what time of day and what time of year it is. Wow. You're 68 and just got your first smartphone and you miss an opportunity like that. You know, you, you hear those stories all the time. It's like, oh, I just wanted to capture this one moment. And, you know, there's a thumb or something else along those lines. and You don't realize it till it's way too late. What a bummer. It does happen. It does happen. And I feel and I'm only 30. So, I mean, I digress. I don't know where I'm going to be at 30, 68, but uh, technology and I clearly aren't friends already. So it's not looking great. <laughs> Well, John, I got to say, this was fun. Are you going to be doing more Sundays in the future? Yeah, Shane will be back next Sunday, but I'll be here the following Sunday. So a bit of uh, musical chairs, but uh, you and I will have the chance to connect again quite soon. 
Oh, I really enjoyed that. Thanks for the perspective. It was great talking to you. Here. You got it, uh, Ryan. Uh, uh, my pleasure. Let's uh, let's chat again real soon. Woo! Great. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. He is, of course, the host of Weird Science. Let's bring in Andrew Ferreira. Andrew Ferreira is weird. weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Weird science. Oh, yeah, that's always uh, putting me in a good mood, a dancey little mood here in the studio. So, Andrew, appreciate you connecting with us here tonight. Uh, you're pulling double-dipping duty as you were technical producer for uh, uh, Maureen McGrath uh, just a few hours ago. But here you are back here on the radio. And before we get any further into Weird Science tonight, let me ask you, would you rather be too hot or would you rather be too cold? Literally freezing my butt cheeks off over being slightly warm <laughs> oh, like uh, interesting if, if, if the temperature is above 15 degrees celsius it's warm oh really oh yeah i i'm not built for heat but I'm but not. but correct me if i'm wrong but you are a filipino canadian yeah and and the philippines are a tropical place right they they it's That's quite true. warm there in the philippines so are you telling me that when you go and visit family uh, you just you can't do it it's eternal suffering oh fair enough It's just, I mean, it's different though. When you're there, you kind of, it's hot and you just kind of accept that this is now my, this is now my lot in life. (laughs) I'm just going to be sweaty and horrible until I leave. Okay. Fair enough. Um, It's different when you're in a place that's not supposed to be hot. Like for instance, I'm in Vancouver. Yeah. When Vancouver hot is like 23 degrees. And I know that sounds hilarious (laughs) to literally everyone else in the country. Yeah. But like Vancouver hot is 23. Yeah, I like I die during that during those temperatures. Okay, fair enough. Uh, like, ice cold baths. Horrible. You know, like they sell those ice bags at the gas station. You just buy a couple of those, throw them in the, and throw them in the bathtub, let it run for a little bit. You're good to go, man. Uh, honestly, like oh, people exactly. give me bizarre looks, but if you're that hot, it's an underrated option to try and cool down, and uh, you can just great. leave it in. You can you know you can just use the bath water. It's fine. Uh, right. Andrew, uh, one place where you don't have to worry about getting too hot, although it is uh, incredibly cold, is Mars, and apparently there's a new mission to. Mars. Mars. Uh, Matt Damon not apparently involved with this one, but give us the breakdown. Of what's going on here? Yeah, Matt Damon is uh, thoroughly uninvolved, to my knowledge. Um, he could actually be involved. Hmm. I don't know, but I mean, if he is, it's top secret, and NASA hasn't said anything. Um, but this is going to be an interesting couple of weeks if you're a space nerd, um, because en route to the red planet are three individual missions from three individual countries or consortiums of countries. Um, so arriving first, let's, let's go from the top here, arriving first uh, and in what should be in about 24 hours from now uh, is the United Arab Emirates. And yes, they do have a space program, believe it or not. Today I, I know learned. I was, I was surprised too, when I learned about this, when it first took off, uh, but United Arab Emirates is uh, Alamal, uh, Martian um, orbiter uh, is scheduled to reach Mars uh, on Tuesday. Um, and it's obviously their, uh, their first ever real attempt at anything, you know, space related. Uh, they kind of partnered with the University of Colorado and a couple of other U.S. institutions. Uh, and they also hitched a ride on a Japanese rocket uh, to get to Mars. Mm. So it's, that one is truly an international effort. Um but that's set to arrive in the next, you know, 24 to 36 hours. Uh, so that just, you know, by virtue of it being, you know, the United Arab Emirates' first ever mission, 
Uh, the UAE is scheduled to become, you know, one of the only nations on this planet that has ever successfully, and this is all pending at works, uh, successfully gotten itself into, into Martian orbit. Because getting into Martian orbit is difficult. Um, when NASA and the Soviet Union and Europe were big on Mars, um, you go back to the 70s, late 60s and 70s, when people were, you know, tossing stuff at Mars like... Um, like enemy oppositions are doing to the Canucks goaltenders right now. Ouch. Uh, look, I'm a Canucks fan. I'm allowed to say it. Um, a lot of the times it failed. About 40% of the missions just either missed the planet, didn't have enough thrust, crashed on landing, lost, you know, just didn't really work. Mm-hmm. So being able to do this would be a fantastic achievement uh, for the United Arab Emirates. Um, not even 24 hours after the United Arab Emirates' Alamal probe is supposed to enter uh, orbit. Um, and by the way, that probe is supposed to monitor Martian weather is kind of the scientific goal of that one. Gotcha. I was about um, to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to look at Martian weather, which is interesting. And actually, uh, while I'm typing, you'll hear my keyboard. I make no apologies for how loud it is. It's okay. That's a nice element to the radio. It's, it's kind right? of soothing. Well, I mean, it's important. Um, it, in case you're wondering, it is an it is an IBM Model M uh, from 1990. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's the best keyword I've ever owned. Oh, fair enough. Uh, uh, in case you're wondering about Martian weather uh, right now, um, the InSight mission on Mars is actually capable of taking uh, weather measurements. Um, but over the last little while, it's weather, uh, it's temperature, um, device hasn't quite been working. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's kind of going on and off and it's probably because of some kind of, uh, it's winter now in Martian Northern hemisphere. So it's getting less sunlight, which means it's probably not getting as much power as it needs. Uh, but at last check, it's about, you know, minus 70 Celsius, you know, wow. You know, kind of chilly. Yeah. Winnipeg weather. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much Winnipeg weather. Uh, but not too long after Alamal is scheduled to enter Martian orbit, all things going according to plan. China's Tianwen-1 um, will remain in orbit until May when it's going to try to become the first ever probe or country to do this, where the Tianwen-1 mission has an orbiter, a lander, and a rover all in one. And no country's ever been able to successfully pull that off before. Hmm. Uh, and China, over the last few years, has really, excuse the pun, uh, rocketed into uh, a position uh, <laughs> of space supremacy. They're they're really taking it to NASA uh, and the U.S. In you know they've successfully landed a couple things on the moon, some long lived rovers, rousing successes all around. To be honest, but like in typical Chinese space agency fashion, everything is a secret. Right. Um, we don't know when exactly it's going to land. We don't know exactly what the mission goals are. Um, we only have vague ideas based off of scientific papers that have been released uh, in tandem with it. So we really don't know what they want. Just ad- We know that they overall just kind of want to look for signs of ancient microscopic life, which is very much like a lot of the missions that NASA uh, and the European Space Agency have sent to uh, Mars before. Uh, and those are, you know, the undercard, if you will, uh, for Mars missions. Uh, and in a couple of weeks, uh, the big boy probe is coming. And that is from NASA. And that's its Perseverance hmm. uh, rover. And now, you've probably heard of Curiosity. It's Mars's current, uh, you know, front of the line uh, rover that's currently on the on the red planet right now. Yeah. It's essentially a nuclear powered self-driving car. Um which, you know, is kind of badass that we can say that there is a nuclear-powered self-driving car on Mars. Um, if Perseverance is successful in its descent and landing and everything, 
it will be the second nuclear-powered self-driving car on the Red Planet. Um, but Perseverance borrows a lot of Curiosity's design, uh, a lot of the elements it's needed to get to the ground in, um, and a lot of the overall look. But Perseverance is a much different uh, machine on the inside. Um, this is going to be an incredible mission should it land safely and successfully. Um, Perseverance is going to do what the same thing that Tianwen-1 rover wants to do. It's going to look around for signs of ancient microscopic life, which you know we believe we have great evidence that, sh- that suggests that in the past, Mars hosted water, and with that possibility means Mars could have hosted life. Right. Um, so what Perseverance is going to do is it's going to rover its way over to an ancient river delta. And if you're looking for ancient life, or an ancient river delta sounds like a good place to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, the landing zone uh, is in an area called Jezero Crater. Uh, this is a place that NASA wanted Curiosity to land in. But, you know, in 2007, 2008, we didn't have the technology to be confident in our ability to land something there. Uh, but times have evolved and our computers have gotten better and our scientists have gotten smarter. Um, and so Perseverance now is going to try and land in the Jezero Crater. Um, now, the Jezero Crater is literally like a danger zone for uh, any rover. It's got steep cliffs. It's got deep pits. It's got fields of rocks, um, you know, for the average Jeep or ATV, it is quite literally almost nothing. But for a nuclear-powered self-driving car, uh, you know, 60 million kilometers from Earth, it's a bit of a a tougher proposition. Right. Um, this rover is also really interesting in that with Perseverance, uh, sorry, with Curiosity, they kind of have to plan out its maneuvers. Uh, and, you know, they, they go over camera data and plan it out. But with uh, perseverance there'll be a greater degree of uh of automation it'll be more able to find its own way um you know among the i'm gonna go over two things here because i'm looking at the clock and i'm going oh geez i'm getting up towards that time um there are two big things that i think are gonna be super interesting with perseverance first of all is that it's going to be scooping up dirt and rocks and you know cool sciencey things but then it'll be stashing them and the purpose of this is so that in the next eight or nine years a joint mission between NASA and the European Space Agency will launch a a sample retrieval mission. So Perseverance will take these samples and leave them on the surface of Mars. And then in eight or nine years, uh, a rocket will come from Earth. It'll drop a lander, which will deploy a rover. And this rover will pick up those samples that Perseverance dropped off, scurry back to a rocket that'll launch itself automatically back into Mars orbit and then return back to Earth. Ah. Um, If they can pull that off, that would be absolutely insane. That That would be one of the most technologically complex things that humanity has ever achieved. Andrew, a couple of questions. I'll ask you a question sent in from London in our text message inbox asking, what is the time frame for having humans step onto Mars and Saturn's moons, especially Titan? Anything happening before, say, December 31st, 2025? You see anything like that happening in the next four years? Uh, people on Mars, uh, optimistically, 2030. Uh-huh, okay. Optimistically, okay. realistically, in my opinion, and Debbie Downer here, uh, 2045, 2050. I think that the challenges are a lot more than what, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos want us to believe they are. Uh, And as for Titan, I'm going to go with uh, literally centuries. Okay. Um, Only because Titan, uh, the atmosphere is, well, there's liquid on the surface, but it's liquid natural gas. And so it's about minus 190 
Oh, dear. So uh, I'm not sure if people would very much like that. Uh, robots, for sure. We've already had one. And NASA's planning to send another one uh, in the next decade and a half. So that'll be interesting. Okay. Uh, but Titan is kind of out of the question. And then in the, uh, 15 seconds, is the new space race basically going down between NASA and China? It used to be NASA and the Soviet Union. Now it seems like that's shifted. It'll be between NASA, China, and private enterprise. Oh, okay. Yeah, like Elon Musk's company. Like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos. That's okay. Correct. All right. He is the host of Weird Science. That is Andrew Ferreira. Andrew, thank you for giving us some time here and giving us a look into what's happening on Mars, my friend. Yeah, man. No worries. It's the Shift Podcast. Last night on Saturday Night Live, maybe you saw the performances from Dan Levy, who was a guest host representing Canada so well. But then you might have also seen the musical guest. That was Phoebe Bridgers. And during the end of her performance, Phoebe Bridgers going full vintage and smashing her guitar on the stage to just wrap up her show, the big finale, if you will. And it got us thinking because we don't see this happening too often anymore. There used to be this golden period where bands would routinely smash guitars. So I wanted to connect with our resident musical expert, the man who actually booked the night off, but we thought we would bother him anyways. His name is Matt MacArthur. So first of all, Matt, appreciate you giving us some time here tonight, even though you're technically on your anniversary. We appreciate you, pal. Oh, yeah, no, no, no problem. I I definitely appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I I was just studying up on the performance and and everything like that. Gotcha. uh, um, Yeah, like the actual anniversary is tomorrow, but um, technically... It has been a full year because um, it was a leap year last year. Oh, so that's right. Been, yeah, it has been 365 days. So in that sense, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a special occasion. So uh, happy anniversary. I'm sorry to give you a call here on your day off on such a special occasion. But you are the resident musical wizard, the musical magician on the show. So... Uh, you are the most qualified to have any sort of opinion or any sort of take on what we saw on Saturday Night Live last night here, Matt. So take us through what your reaction was when you see the very talented Phoebe Bridgers uh, take out all of her rage and all of that angst onto that poor guitar and smash it, or at least give it an attempt to smash it. Yeah, well, um, it's it's really uh, cool. Like if, if you think kind of about the history of of just smashing guitars in general, it's been a primarily like like masculine sort of act. Like it's a, like a real sort of um, kind of dumb. It, it's a kind of like a almost a dumb caveman thing to do. <laughs> Me um, smash guitar. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, historically, it's been been like male musicians. And I I don't know if I'm wrong. Maybe somebody will correct me out there, but. Um, you know, it's been primarily male musicians that have smashed the heck out of their guitars. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of empowering because I think for most people in Phoebe Bridgers' audience, um, which includes myself, I'm a huge fan of her, just full disclosure. Right. Um, and I thought her performance on Saturday Night Live was, besides being good television, was just, you know, just excellent. Um, but yeah, in terms my reaction was like, holy crap, like, I haven't seen anybody smash an instrument since perhaps, you know, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Right. Um, and maybe even in the 2000s with the Vines, if anybody remembers the Vines, they used to smash a lot of their stuff up as well. Um, but um, it was great. It was cool to see, um, to see, like, a female musician, like, attack 
uh, smashed the crap out of her monitor with an axe. Like, <laughs> you, like you, using using her axe as a literal axe just to, you know, smash it up. And it was kind of like, it, you know, the song is This Is The End, and it's a very apocalyptic and kind of intense song. So it seems like there was no other kind of way to end it, really. That's fair. And, um, yeah, and she, like, yeah, she smashed um, the monitor up. Like, it made great television, for sure. Like, that monitor sparked, like, you know, she she really did great work on it. You know, even if she, I don't know if she was trying to smash, like, separate the body from the neck of the guitar or whatever, um, which is no easy task. Yeah. Um, even for, I mean, historically, you know, you look at, you know, Jimi Hendrix, you look at Pete Townsend, Kurt Cobain, these were all very, you know, slight, thin, you know, men as well. And ironically, probably the same physique as Phoebe Bridgers. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, to, like, to, to go for such an act, like it didn't seem, you know... Contrived like it was, and forced? It, yeah, yeah. It, it didn't seem like it was coming out of the blue or anything like that. It just, it fit. It, like it fit the thing. And right. perhaps it was just like a total release of of energy to just you know like we've all had this built up kind of anxiety or like energy just from you know you know what and you know all of the events of the past year for sure so per- perhaps she i don't know if she made it a habit in i mean i've seen a lot of her performances and that's the, the only time i've ever seen her just like go nuts <laughs> on a on a on a stage like that. Well, but. well, a couple of thoughts here, Maddie, because like there there was one tweet after that SNL performance where somebody was talking about and 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 look for like full transparency. You know, I don't know too much about guitars. I know what a Les Paul looks like, uh, gen- generally speaking. But somebody had tweeted like saying, um, you know, Phoebe Bridgers. Yeah, it's kind of cool, but this was like apparently, according to the tweet, it was an eighty dollar guitar or like a cheap guitar. So, do do we do we take into consideration like how expensive the guitars have to be? Like, I guess it would be more badass if Phoebe had smashed like a one of a kind legendary guitar or something. I mean, it would be, but even historically. Um because like the whole showmanship idea of smashing the guitar, like you go back to the who um, and, and everything like, and even there's some parallels also with Nirvana where they, you know, the artists like, uh, you know, Pete Townsend and, you know, Kurt Cobain, they had their favorite guitars. Like they had like their ones that they would play shows with that they would never even think of doing harm to because they were either expensive or they just had a like sentimental value. So when it came time to for the guitar smashy smashy part of the show, they would get like a cheap um, guitar. They would get like a like you know maybe like a hundred dollar or two hundred dollar guitar, mm-hmm. and that and then that would be the the sacrificial lamb of the night. Um, and then um, so yeah, I mean it would be obviously more badass to smash you know thousand dollar guitar right but um why do that when you can smash a hundred dollar guitar exactly you know it's it's the same gesture and you know you still have to buy another guitar yeah exactly it's it's the messaging that that matters more than anything but you know i i'm not sure matt if you've seen the movie called the hateful eight uh, it's on netflix and in it there's a character um played by kurt russell and there's a different character who happens to be playing this really unique looking guitar and um Originally, when they were filming this movie, 
Kurt Russell's character was supposed to take that guitar and like he was totally annoyed that this person was playing the guitar. So he's supposed to smash the guitar against the wall and just completely destroy it. But they were supposed to replace that guitar with a with like an extra cheaper spare version because the guitar that Kurt Russell ended up accidentally smashing was a four thousand dollar one hundred and fifty year old guitar that was oh. borrowed to the movie by a local museum, uh, like a um, a music music museum or whatever it is you want to call them. And it, wow, or actually, part of me it was a forty thousand dollar guitar, so it was even way more expensive. So obviously, you know. When you smash a guitar, and, and if it's costing a lot, and if it's truly extraordinarily rare, uh, sometimes you actually end up looking like a bit of a jerk. Because in Kurt Russell's case, you know, he didn't really know what was happening. He, he was just doing what he was supposed to do in the script, but he forgot that they were supposed to swap out the guitar, or maybe somebody didn't tell him. So in this case, you know, maybe going with the cheaper, less expensive, less rare guitar, it's, uh, it's better for everybody that way. Oh, it is, yeah, because the whole gesture is really, like, it's all about showmanship. And um, and it's kind of in, ingenious when you, if you're, like, a, you know, a, a student or, a, like, a, pardon me, if you're, like, a student of rock history, mm-hmm. um, you sort of, you know, you read books about the Who or Nirvana, and, you know, they would, about these groups that would smash their, their gear, like, pretty much every night as, like, either a release or just in plain showmanship. Um they're, you know, if you didn't have a lot of money, uh, like in the early days of the Who and Nirvana, they didn't have uh, obviously a lot of money. Right. But they would still, they would still, in order to gain a lot of, you know, word of mouth, you know, because if you smash your guitar, everybody's going to be talking about it, and especially in a, in days of the Who and days of Nirvana where there was no social media, so it was all like word of mouth. It was all like magazines, televisions, music fans, you know, radio talking about, holy crap, did you see, like, Nirvana come through the town pump? They, he, you know, Kurt just totally smashed the drum kit in half with his guitar. Holy crap. <laughs> you know, and so, um, but but behind the scenes, um, you know, they would get these cheap guitars, and it was the ingeniousness um, of the guitar techs of, right. the, of the crew. They would actually take all of this, the, all of the parts that they could find. Um, you know, some would obviously go missing, you know, in the, in the course of a night, you know, cause you're smashing stuff. Knobs are flying everywhere. Like, you know, or, or people are going to even take parts. Yeah, you exactly. Know, uh, like a little souvenir. With, exactly. So it would be up to the guitar tech to reassemble, you know, the thing for the, in time for the next night. Oh, show. interesting. Yeah. So, um, like the Who um, did that a lot. Um, Nirvana did that a lot. So there was a lot of glue. There was a lot of you know, probably duct tape, clamps. You know, and, and, and just, in a way, it makes it easier to smash again because it's already broken. So you don't need to worry about like having to try and and break it from completely brand new, like Phoebe Bridgers was doing uh, on SNL. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah. And I and I gotta say, like circling back to to Phoebe, like you know, she she did an admirable job. Like she was she was given it like she was trying her hardest right. to uh to do it and she even if i don't know if she set out to do what she went out to do but it made great television and it just seemed absolutely perfect for for the song and just for the the general context of of the experiences that we're all having like i thought it was just great 
yeah. and not un- unnecessary at all. No, it just it just kind of fit the moment, right? And uh, that's that's the thing too. It came naturally. So uh, before we let you go, and, and you know, we're here in conversation with our good friend Matt MacArthur, who actually uh, booked the night off, but we're making him work anyways because that's what we hey. like to do here. <laughs> um, well, why do you think for a little while there, Matt? smashing guitars just kind of disappeared like we don't really as you sort of mentioned earlier we don't see it happening a whole lot these days and when it does happen it becomes a big deal like we saw on snl with phoebe bridgers like did we all of a sudden collectively as society kind of start thinking like oh this is getting tacky or this is getting overdone like what why do you think there was a dry spell there i mean that could be because um you know there's a certain like recklessness about it and you know like there were like the groups that had in question that were famous for smashing guitars, you know, um, they had, ve- they were very, they had a very reckless energy about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the vines, um, if anybody remembers them, they were, they were super reckless. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's a certain element of that. Like, like why, tr- why try doing it if it's already been done and also done spectacularly. Like there's an incredible film or famous film, of uh, the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and Jimi Hendrix like throws his guitar on the on the stage. He pours lighter fluid on it, throws a match on it, oh, yeah. burns burns the crap out of it, smashes it, and um, and everything like that. So when you've got moments like that, like there's no way that your band down the street, or, or even like your say top level famous bands, are going to live up to that. Mm. And and most. Yeah, the, like it's those reckless kind of groups that have that reckless energy that only come around once in a while. And I think that's why you have the dry spell because there's, you know, long dry spells of music where a lot of groups are like pretty conservative and they've probably worked a lot of, of their lives to save up for these expensive guitars. For sure. And they like playing yeah. these expensive guitars and they wouldn't even dream of like smashing their gear up. It makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, you know, at some point, uh, you just leave something like that maybe left to the legendary bands of old and of, of lore, if you like. And uh, if it feels like it's almost impossible to try and recreate what they did, then why even bother? But uh, as we saw SNL last night, uh, it was a special performance. It was a special episode, really, for Canadians. Dan Levy was hosting SNL. And so yeah. maybe there was a lot of different reasons as to why Phoebe Bridgers felt so inspired to uh, give that give that guitar of hers a nice old smash. But Matt, appreciate you giving us some time here tonight and sort of breaking down the art, the science, and the history of guitar smashing. We appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate, um, you know, uh, being uh, reached out to, to in terms of, like, my rock knowledge. I, I always I enjoy talking about music. I think music is perhaps one of the, the greatest things in life, obviously. And... Um, yeah, and I, I appreciate um, the call out, and I wasn't put out at all uh, on my day off to do it. So I definitely appreciate it, John. This is the Shift Podcast. Right or wrong, big or small, John Jang has a take on it all. This is the Big Jang Theory. So that brings us now, uh, in kind of in anticipation for this calendar year at least, to the next biggest sporting event, which brings us to the 2021 Tokyo Olympic Games. And this is kind of becoming quite a story. Now, 
I know there's been conversation with regards to 2022 Beijing and whether or not countries should pull out, if you should maybe just kind of protest the games in itself. But first and foremost, you got to get through Tokyo. And assuming that the Tokyo games proceed as planned, it should be noted that organizers in Tokyo do not plan on having a closed doors Olympics. If they're going to proceed with the Olympic Games this year, they want to have fans in the stadiums. They want to have fans cheering on all the athletes from all over the world. And that's got me thinking, even logistically, that seems like a nightmare. Some of these athletes will have vaccines. Most of them won't. And now you're just kind of rolling the dice on the health of some of the best athletes that the entire world has to offer. And then, you might have heard about this already, the controversy stemming from the president of Tokyo's Olympic Organizing Committee. His name is Yoshiro Mori, and he has said now that he will not resign after his derogatory comments about uh, women, which caused widespread backlash online and certainly in news circles around the world. Here's a report on that from Yahoo Sports. The Tokyo Olympics Organising Committee apologised on Thursday for making sexist remarks about women. There have been calls for Yoshiro Mori to step down after he said that female board members talked too much. The 83-year-old made the comments at a Japanese Olympic Committee meeting this week, according to a report in the Asahi Shinbun newspaper. The committee board currently has 24 members, five of whom are women. It has set a target of increasing the number of female board directors to 40%. Mori reportedly said, quote, If we increase the number of female board members, we have to make sure their speaking time is restricted somewhat. They have difficulty finishing, which is annoying. In a hastily called press conference on Thursday, the former Japanese Prime Minister said his comments were wrong. But he remained defiant about his position. <laughs> In regards to the comment I made at the Japanese Olympic Committee Board of Trustees meeting, I recognize it was an inappropriate comment against the Olympics and Paralympics spirit. I regret it deeply. Ah, uh, not good enough. Sorry, not good enough. Yoshida Mori should have resigned and he should still resign uh, effective immediately because that is just that that's the worst thing you could possibly say as your nation is scrambling trying to make sure the Olympics can even proceed at all. Last thing you need is now the head of the organizing committee making sexist comments like that. But what I love, what I admire, maybe if there was a silver lining from this story, Haley Wickenizer. The greatest Canadian hockey player of all time, certainly with her accomplishments uh, in the female side of things, Haley Wickenizer said this on Twitter, quote, definitely going to corner this guy at the breakfast buffet. I'll see you in Tokyo. Hashtag old boys club. I love that Haley Wickenizer saw this quote and immediately knew that she had to get involved because certainly, you know, uh, she can't stand for that. Uh, we, we live in a society that has made great progresses in, in women's rights. Uh, you can definitely argue and, and tell me that it's not there yet. It's getting there. But in places, different places around the world, uh, they would dream and they would love to have some of the rights and freedoms that uh, women enjoy here in Canada and in the, in the United States. So comments like this, man. 
it is disgusting to see. And uh, maybe it's a cultural thing in Japan. I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I've never lived in Japan. I haven't spent a ton of time in Asia. But it seems like it's just such a unnecessary thing to add on to the stress of all the other organizers in Tokyo. But my take on this whole Olympic situation, and, and this applies to both 2021 and to 2022, is just don't do it. Don't do it. And I know for the athletes themselves and the coaches and the management that have poured so many countless amount of hours in preparation for these opportunities, don't go. Right now, it's the worst time to go because vaccines are still not completely distributed fairly, evenly. Uh, Some countries, especially the poorer countries in the world, they are struggling to get vaccines at all. And we know that this is the Olympics. It's an international worldwide event, which means there are going to be athletes and representatives from certain countries where they've had really very little amounts of vaccines in their country being accessed. And we can't promise that if we send our athletes over to Tokyo, that they would be safe. And the last thing I would want to hear is that Penny Alexiak or any of our bright young Canadian athletes uh, happen to get sick, whether it's here in in Tokyo or later even in, in Beijing for 2022. I have to say this too. I'm just not a fan of the Olympics. I think the IOC is a blood-sucking corporation. They pose themselves as this, uh, you know, sports committee that's uniting the world with what they put on every two years or every four years, depending on which Olympics you prefer to watch. But in reality, let's face it, the IOC is a corrupt organization that has no consideration for the host cities and the host countries that put on their games. They do not care about anything except for money. They operate, their headquarters in Switzerland is a tax-free headquarters. It's a tax-free corporation. And yet when they come into town, they demand everything. All the commercial rights, all the TV rights, everything. They took 70% of all television profits and revenues generated from all the uh, you know televised broadcasted events uh, at the most recent Olympics, 70%. And then there's the copyright laws that come with the Olympics. You know, here in Vancouver in 2010, if you happen to have had an apartment downtown and on your windows, if you had, let's just say, a Coca-Cola poster, you would have gotten an actual visit on the door, at, at your doorstep, pardon me, telling you to remove that. Because it's not in line with the Olympics and their advertising partners or their commercial partners. So all of a sudden, the IOC just comes into town and takes up everything. They do not care about anybody except themselves and money. They don't care about the athletes. They don't care about the countries. They just care about making as much money as possible. They practice in the sickest rent-seeking behavior year in and year out, trying to make it kind of nice, right? Their marketing plan and strategies are brilliant. They get all these great videos and these emotional connections. And certainly it's worth celebrating. Like for example, in 2010, well, Alexandre became the first Canadian to win gold medal on home territory in, in Canada. And then they sell those stories for years and years and years and try to fool everyone, the entire world really, into thinking that the Olympics are good. When really they devastate economies They take away a bunch of corporate rights. Like in Vancouver at the time, what was called GM Place had to be renamed Canada Hockey Place. Like that's just another example of the Olympics stomping their feet into everything. And I'm I'm sick of it. I know that the storylines are beautiful. I, I care deeply for the athletes that train so hard to get this recognition. But there's got to be a better way to do it now. We have got to reexamine the entire Olympics model. It's just 
not working for me. And if Tokyo and the organizers are making sexist comments, and if they really plan on having an open door Olympics during still a serious time, a pivotal time during COVID-19, I'm sorry, but you lost me. Do not send Canadian athletes. Don't send American athletes. Don't send any athletes. Let them suffer. Tokyo, I know. Japan, you've already pumped in hundreds of millions of dollars to build up infrastructure. It's better than having to deal with the alternative, which is having your country and your city being known in the rest of history as the Olympics that got the rest of the world sick because there's just not enough protection and not enough vaccines. No more Olympics. That's my thoughts on it. It's the Shift Podcast. For now, let's bring in our friend, Roberto. Roberto calls it soccer. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. Roberto's North American, proudly so. Uh, Ryan o- O'Donnell is going to take us through some Mario case. You bet I am. And let's, uh, we might as well just stick on theme here. So, gentlemen, question for you. Are you okay with halftime shows? Oh, um, you know, yeah, I, I think I am. Like, I, I've got a few bones to pick with halftime shows. Like, they don't let bands, for example, actually play the instruments live. It's all, you know, it's all canned. It's all pre-taped. It's all recordings from the albums. But are they entertaining? Yeah, for the most part, they can be cool and they become a story even outside of the actual game. So I'm, I'm okay with this with the uh, with the Super Bowl halftime shows. I I, I used to enjoy. Now, now the last few years, I I've got bored of the halftime shows. Wow, because they don't entertain anymore. Like today, I I missed half of the. Uh, the weekend show because I was watching like a, a soccer game that was taking place <laughs> at the same time. It was finishing. So you know? you, last year you didn't even like J Lo and Shakira. Uh, no, I think the last Super Bowl show that I really like enjoyed. I'm, I'm a, I think was like the Who, which was like 2010, and wow. I, I didn't like okay. anyone after those. Okay, that, but it's a personal take. Interesting. Okay. Well, I uh, I like halftime shows. I like seeing how they put them together. Some are better than others. Last year's the Maroon Five one was horrible it was or no the year before that mm-hmm. last year's was shakira and j-lo and that was 10 out of 10 i was in a bar and there was like 150 people there and you should have seen everybody glued to the tv it was more than during the game it was hilarious but in general i'm okay with halftime shows right. but obviously this past one one of canada's best artists killed it at the super bowl last night the weekend made his entrance at the top of the stadium He had an elaborate Vegas-themed set featuring a giant choir and violinists. He sang some hits like The Hills, Can't Feel My Face, and Earned It. And he even uh, sang a song off House of Balloons, which is insane. Like, that's a deep cut. So he was doing that for his fans there. But the the coolest moment of the halftime show was definitely when The weekend capped things off with the Blinding Hot Lights song, which has over like 1.8 billion streams on Spotify. And uh, this is the moment where he transitioned to the song, and I thought I thought it was really cool. It's a good song. So, it's a it's an amazing song. It's helped to bring back the '80s synth vibe, mm-hmm. which I love. 
Uh, now, he made headlines, obviously, for putting $7 million of his own dollars into the show, which I'm glad he did, because I thought the production value was quite good. Uh, and he was the first uh, halftime performer since Gaga in 2017 to not have a single backup uh, artist uh, or any guest stars in it. Uh, so mostly positive reviews. Some criticized the mixing, which I would agree the mixing was off. You mm. couldn't really hear them at certain points. And some people didn't love the visuals of the army of red clad people with like bandaged faces, which right. was a statement on uh, beauty and how we perceive beauty, uh, That which is kind of themes from his album. Um, but there's the memes. Every Super Bowl halftime show creates memes. Katy Perry had the, <laughs> you know, the shark. Uh, last year we had just everybody being attracted to J-Lo and Shakira. Uh, and then, of course, there were so many memes with uh, Maroon 5. But this one, <laughs> this might be the best Super Bowl meme in a while because he there's a part in the performance where he gets up close to the camera with like a funhouse setting, and there's just a bunch of stills. So people just put captions and a screenshot that says, when you're really drunk and you start FaceTiming your friends, and it's just a still of the weekend looking out of his mind, screaming into a camera really too close. Uh, it's great. So I'm okay with it. The internet seems to be okay with it. Mm. I'm glad that the show seemed to have gone well for him, especially because you could tell he really wanted that to work out for him. For sure. Because, you know, anytime you get the chance to do the Super Bowl halftime show, you know, for the artists themselves, that's a huge accomplishment because you know yeah, hundreds of millions of Americans and Canadians, for that matter, and people all over the world are glued into the TV for these performances. So it's oh, bigger yeah. than your average concert. It's bigger than your average music festival. It's bigger than Coachella. So I, I can definitely see why The weekend wanted to make sure, hey, I want things to go according to plan. I'm going to invest millions of my own dollars to make sure that it's all up to par. I, you know, I thought he, it was it was a challenge because, you know, no fans. Uh, it's a it's a COVID-19 Super Bowl, uh, a whole bunch of things that were happening. But mostly good, you know, mostly good. I yeah, was waiting for like that one truly iconic moment. And, and, you know, maybe this just goes back to me, I don't know, looking for reasons to, to just poke holes in, in performances. Maybe I'm just a spoiled brat now. But overall, I, I, I give him a, a solid like B plus or A minus, depending on yeah, like what your curriculum is. And, and yep, the, that meme, that meme you're talking about, uh, yeah, I saw it's it on Twitter meme. and, uh, you know, I even retweeted yeah. a version myself because somebody wrote uh, the video of him like sort of stumbling around with the, with the camera. Uh, somebody had wrote like, um, when you get lost at the Cheesecake Factory and can't find your table again, <laughs> you know? So there's, you know, I, I yeah, love the good. fact that the internet is at least uh, embracing the weekend with open arms. Um, well, they're embracing my favorite one was definitely uh, when someone superimposed Bill Bilichek's head on top of the weekend's body <laughs> and had the video of him lost in the maze. That made me, that made me when, smile. When, yeah, when, you, when you're struggling right to now. find a, a replacement quarterback, basically. Yep. Yeah, and watching exactly. Tom uh, win number seven earlier that number day. Number seven without you. Uh, we got this one Crazy. from Dwayne in the text message inbox. The best halftime show was Nipplegate. And Ryan, you know, oh, I, I know man. you're young, but you, you certainly know about Janet and Justin. Well, I just even think of the office where Michael says, last year I went as Janet Jackson's left boob. <laughs> uh, like, it's just like, I, it's an iconic moment. And it's like, I feel horrible for Janet. I mean, she's moved on from it, obviously, but that's crazy that that happened. Uh, and But you're wrong, though. The best Super Bowl of all time performance was Prince when it was raining when uh, he did yes. Purple Rain. It's like unbelievable. That's that, the best one. 2007, if I'm not mistaken, Leo? I think yeah, that was, that was yeah. the, yes, that was the 27th uh, Colts Bears one. Yeah. 
for the 26th. That's right. And then the rain coming down. You know, I've seen documentaries regarding Prince's performance at that halftime show. And uh, there, there were so many concerns because the weather was not great. And so the night before, all of the coordinators and planners were so worried because they had those uh, little like curtain things that were supposed to drop down and they were super worried that because of the wind and because of the rain there was a chance of thunder like they, they were they were just up all night basically sick that they wouldn't be able to pull it off and yet when the rain fell prince was able to just kill it flawlessly and i think the one thing people need to note when you decide to go watch prince's performance at that halftime show again is the fact that he's performing on a stage, slippery when wet, and boy was it wet, and he's wearing like high tops, or not high tops, like high heels basically, right? And he's still able to just make I the just, moves as he yeah, does, right. kill the guitar as he does, the, the incredible performer that he was. So uh, yeah, I think that definitely could go down in history as one of the best, although fans of the 1992 performance of Michael Jackson in LA might have mm. a bone to pick with that particular take. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.